0: This morning are found once again in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 31. I also wanted to just uh, mention, again, encourage you if you have a chance to um, come to the midweek prayer service. I am preaching on uh, at that prayer service as well. I, I preach for usually 30 minutes, uh, if I go long, 40 minutes or so. And then we're spending you know a good hour to an hour and a half in prayer. Is the aim. Um, I'm going to begin an exposition of the book of Revelation beginning this Wednesday. So, if you're curious about what the Bible teaches about Revelation, or at least uh, what uh, the how the elders would interpret that book, I would encourage you to come, and I think you'll be greatly edified by that. So, uh, preaching through the book of Acts Sunday mornings, and then Wednesday evenings through the book of Revelation. Let's begin reading in Acts chapter four. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, As to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. and We cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to the God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people. Because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit... Through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of earth take their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against Yahweh and against his Christ. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Please pray with me. Lord, even as I end in reading that last sentence, I want to beg for grace, even as these early Christians did, that You would grant me grace to speak the Word of God with boldness. Lord, not just... Here and on Wednesday nights. But Lord, in every situation. With family, with friends, with strangers. And Lord, I pray that you would grant all of us courage to be faithful. Not only faithful to preach, but faithful to always do the right thing when tempted and threatened to do what is wrong. Lord, we're not naive to the reality of what's going on around us and how, uh, not just in our culture, but throughout the world, persecution and animosity against Christ and His followers is ramping up. But Lord, because most of us have not lived in such situations where our lives have been at stake on account of our faith, we need grace to prepare so I pray that you would work even through this simple sermon to prepare us for any trial, any difficulty, but especially that of persecution when it does take place. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. According to Christianity Today and Open Doors, which invests itself in research regarding persecution, 360 million Christians currently live in nations that are extremely hostile to Christianity. Just this last year, more than 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith. That's 2022. 5,600. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or forcibly closed. More than 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes on account of their faith. And almost 15,000 of those are now refugees. And this means that on average, every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith in Christ. Every day. And every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and five are abducted. Surprisingly, the, the country where this is happening at, at the most uh, prolific rates is Nigeria. It is by far the most dangerous place to be a Christian. It's the largest, most populous African nation, and it, it, there are many Christians there. But there is great persecution against those Christians. And persecution generally comes from those in power who want to use their power and authority to coerce those under them to think the way they want them to think and to do what they want them to do. And from the very beginning of the church, we see this persecution from governmental authorities. Acts chapter 4 narrates really the beginning of the church's persecution, right after the church was born. Just really days later, we have the church persecuted by its rulers. That is the rulers in Jerusalem. And the main point of this chapter is that the Jewish rulers uh, react hostily to the person of Christ and the preaching of Christ. I want you to see how the rulers are highlighted even in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them. Then look at verse five. Their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem and specifies Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. Then in verse eight, Peter addresses specifically the rulers and the elders of the people. Then in verse eleven, Peter quotes Psalm 118:22 that prophesied that the Jewish rulers would reject their Messiah. The stone which was rejected by you, the builders. He's speaking to the rulers. Then in verse 23, when the apostles report back to the church, they specifically note that it was the chief priests and the elders who were seeking to oppose Christ. Then they reference Psalm 2. And note that the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. And then in Verse 27, they conclude their prayer, saying, For in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purposes predestined to occur. My point is, to emphasize what the point of the passage is, and that is the Jewish rulers were opposed to their Messiah, and anybody who would preach the Messiah. So it doesn't just narrate how the church started or even how persecution began, but it actually highlights that the persecution was actually part of the plan of God that had been prophesied back in the Old Testament and was coming to fruition. The Jewelers, Jewish ruler's rejection of Jesus and his followers preaching in his name in fact, therefore, confirms that Jesus is the Messiah because the Messiah would be rejected by the rulers of Israel. He was the chief cornerstone rejected by the builders. So that's the point of this passage, and that it can be broken down into uh, four different parts. Isaiah, I'm having a hard time. It's not clicking for some reason. Um. First, you have the ruler's reaction to the apostles' preaching, and essentially they feel threatened. And so they threaten them in return. Uh, the Christians respond to these uh, their they're trial by boldly preaching Christ to them. The rulers react by threatening the Christians, and then the Christians respond to those threats by praying that they could continue to boldly preach Christ. Let's look specifically at each of these in the passage beginning with the ruler's reaction to the Christian's preaching. In particular, Luke notes first that the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees are who confront the apostles. The priests, as you recall from our study of the book of Numbers, were uh, responsible for guarding the temple precinct and the tabernacle precinct. Uh, That The apostles were preaching on the temple grounds, and so obviously the guardians of the temple grounds would have an interest in what's going on, what they're saying, and what they see disturbs them. Luke also notes that the captain of the temple guard was upset. Uh, He would have been a Levite. The Levites, uh, this was their responsibility. Um, And the person in command of the temple security was the captain of the temple uh, the Temple Guard. And this was a, a significant position. In fact, uh, Josephus notes that uh, in um, one of his ancient writings, that that along with uh, the high priest, the captain of the Temple Guard was sent to Rome in order to be imprisoned. So he's the equivalent of the director of the CIA or the FBI or one of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So it. it not an insignificant person. So you have the the priests who oversee the temple. You have the captain of the temple guard. And then Luke also mentions the Sadducees. Now we could describe these as the liberal elitist Jews in Jerusalem. and They were more secular than religious, though they were religious. And they were mostly concerned with maintaining their power and increasing their power. Uh, their worldly uh, wealth. They were political opponents of the Pharisees. We could designate the, the Pharisees as the political conservatives. And the Bible notes that the Sadducees particularly fought with the Pharisees over the idea of the resurrection because, for the Sadducees, they believed that they needed to have their best life now, so to speak. They didn't believe in a future resurrection. And that all that mattered was this life. And the Pharisees, in contrast, believed that the resurrection was central to the Jewish faith. The topic, therefore, of the resurrection was as uh, politically volatile uh, at this time period as the topic of abortion would be today. So we can better understand the reaction of the Sadducees regarding the claim that Jesus had just risen from the dead. This is politically volatile news, not just religiously interesting preaching. And so they're threatened by it. And this is also why in verse 2 Luke notes that these rulers were greatly disturbed because they were teaching and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is why they immediately react to the apostles' teaching by throwing them in jail. Now notice... That Luke notes that the rulers, the elders, and the scribes were gathered together in opposition to the apostles' preaching. That's the same word that's used earlier to describe the Christians' devotion to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And they showed that by gathering together. You remember that? It's the same phrase. So we have polar opposites of the religious spectrum. Some are gathering together. To worship the risen Christ, the others are gathering together to oppose him. So these Jewish rulers are uniting together in direct opposition to the Christian. And Luke specifies um, directly that even the chief leaders of the Jews are opposed to them. Four men are mentioned Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. He specifies four of the leading men of Israel. This would be like the president, the vice president, the speaker of the house, and the majority, Senate majority leader. All of them opposed to what the apostles are teaching and preaching. So these body of ultra-powerful men call these former fishermen onto the carpet, into court, so to speak, and they challenge them by asking, By what power or in what name are you teaching these things? Have you done this? The healing of the lame man, in other words. So they're asking, what, what right, what freedom, what authority do you have to cause such a disturbance by healing somebody and then preaching in Jesus' name? If rulers get the sense that you're a threat to their political power, they will oppose you. And notice that they're not so much concerned with the validity of the healing of the layman or even the validity of what the apostles are teaching. What they're concerned with is authority. They feel politically threatened by the name of Christ. right? The loss of power and prestige is their greatest concern. It's not the truth. And this is very often the case. It's not that governmental authorities don't believe even the truthfulness of what they're saying. Often they do, and that's why they're threatened. But they're chiefly threatened that they may lose their power and authority if you don't do what they tell you to do. If you believe you have the freedom to act and speak apart from their authority, you will be viewed as a threat. Even today, we can imagine governmental rulers asking, by what authority do you have to think that you can continue to meet together during a pandemic? What freedom do you think you have to preach against homosexuality in a culture where we've made this practically our religion? What authority do you have to share your faith on this school campus? What authority do you have to express your opposition to our company's diversity, equity, and inclusion statement of faith? What authority do you have to remove the rainbow flag that we set up in your hospital room? The answer Christians should give is quite simple. Our authority comes directly from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in fact, your King and your Lord, whether you recognize him as your Lord or not. And this is essentially the response of the apostles to this question. We see the apostle response in verses 8 through 12. Peter answers the ruler's question directly. And he goes out of his way to note that the power behind. Peter's response was the Holy Spirit. And his point in in highlighting this fact is to demonstrate the fulfillment exactly of what Christ had promised to his disciples. You might recall in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And it's happened. And the Holy Spirit is giving them the words they need to share. And so in explicit fulfillment of this promise, Peter responds to the Jewish leader's question. And he, he doesn't simply note the offensive truth that the man was healed in Jesus' name. He goes one step further and emphasizes the fact that they the, the man they're preaching in whose name they're preaching, is the very man that just days earlier they crucified unjustly and whom God raised from the dead. And although it was the crowds on Good Friday that called for Jesus to be crucified, and it was the Romans who crucified them, it was this very body of men who bribed Jesus, uh, Judas especially to capture Jesus. And it was after they conducted this uh, kangaroo trial of Jesus, when he had committed no crime and they knew it, it was, it was on account of that authority that they then called the Romans and begged the Romans to crucify him. Because they couldn't do it lawfully themselves. This is the same body of men to whom Peter is now preaching. And for the record, it's helpful to remember too, the last time Peter was in close proximity to this body of men, he denied the Lord three times and declared that he didn't even know who Jesus was. But now in the power of the Holy Spirit, he is boldly proclaiming that they crucified the promised Messiah. The presence of the Spirit has radically changed Peter. And though Peter is the one that's on trial now, he turns the tables on his accusers and accuses them of murder. He points out that they all conspired together in uniformity to condemn an innocent man, Jesus of Nazareth. The same man who was the promised Messiah, their Lord and their King. Whom they say they looked forward to in his arrival. And this is the significance of quoting Psalm 118, 22. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118, which is what he's quoting again, is a psalm about the the rejection and subsequent vindication of the Messiah. Peter then gives to us one of the most important sentences in all of Scripture. Acts 4.12 which we should all memorize and set to our heart. He says that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, Every word is worth meditating upon. Peter's point is that there's only one Messiah. Only way to be saved from the wrath of God. And you, Sanhedrin, crucified Him. Well, what Peter's teaching is the doctrine of sola, Solus Christus. Better known as in Christ alone. Jesus said, as you recall, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is salvation in no one else. If you don't have faith in Christ, you don't have salvation. You don't have freedom from the penalty that you deserve. You don't have freedom from the wrath of God that will rest upon you for all eternity. If you, He is the only means by being saved. If you reject Him as the Messiah, you reject your salvation. And being honest and open about this conviction is what will guarantee your persecution in the future. Because this is not a truth that is going to be welcomed by unbelievers. It's not going to win you any friends. It isn't inclusive enough. It isn't pluralistic enough. And it's it's highly offensive to tell unbelievers that salvation is in Christ alone, that even devout Jews who reject Christ will have to face the wrath of God for eternity. It's offensive to say that Muslims and Mormons and Hindus and Jehovah's Witnesses and Roman Catholics even and and everyone who rejects the truth that salvation is in grace alone, through faith alone and on account of the work of Christ alone. Anyone who rejects those truths rejects the gospel, rejects Christ, rejects their salvation. Salvation is in Christ alone. As John 3.36 also says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That is, they recognize Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine and human. He is the God man who died for us. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you reject the Son, the wrath of God remains. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. This is a highly offensive truth. I remember when I was working uh, at an insurance agency right after graduating from College. I was sharing the gospel with one of my coworkers, and it was a huge room, but maybe five times the size of this sanctuary. Cubicles as far as the eye could see, uh, just cubicles that go up to about right here. And uh, this lady, uh, a friend of mine, her name was Sandy, asked me, "So you're one of those Christians who believe you can only that only those who believe in Christ." will be saved from the wrath of God. And I and quite frankly said, yes, I, that's exactly what I believe. And she started yelling and screaming at me and saying, you're the kind of people that you know, make the world a miserable place, essentially. It caused quite a stir, people standing up, what's going on? It's highly embarrassing and awkward. But I actually share that because it was only maybe a week later that same woman submitted to Christ and trusted in Him for salvation for our sins. Sometimes even the most violent reactions that, that we get from people is because we're getting to their heart. And so don't, don't let that sway you, whether it's threats or whether it's anger, but recognize you know, people need to hear the truth. And we are we may be the only people present and able, who, who can give it to them. Well, notice how the rulers react to... Uh, the Christians' response—they threaten them. The point of the section is the leaders are dumbfounded by the apostles' response to their question. <laughs> Notice they're shocked by the confidence of the apostles, despite the fact that these are untrained, uneducated men. They're much a fisherman, and these these guys have you know essentially they have doctorates. They've been teaching and preaching for years. They're highly respected. Authorities in religion and in politics. And these men, uneducated, untrained, aren't used to teaching in public. If they were in this church, they probably wouldn't be all that eager to give their testimony either in front of people. But here they are with absolute confidence declaring Christ. And on top of this, they, they can't deny that a miracle has taken place because the healed man is standing there before them all. And so these elites, they're not sure What to say or what to do. And so they dismiss the apostles and send them back to their cell. And then they confer together, each hoping at least somebody has an idea of how they should respond. Because they've broken no law. They're not saying anything illegal. It's just highly uncomfortable for these elitists. And again, it's important for us to notice that they aren't concerned about the truth. The truth about their claims is obvious. They, in fact, say it. It's right there before them in plain sight. A man has been healed in Jesus' name. Jesus, uh, Peter was very explicit about that. And also, just look at their words in verse 16. For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all. It's a fact. can't deny it. So in other words, we cannot deny the truth, so what should we do? Believe it? No, because we're not interested in the truth. We're interested in maintaining our power and authority. So we should threaten these Christians and tell them to shut up, which is what they do. Verse 17, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Notice what they tell them to do. They don't say stop teaching. They don't say stop preaching. They don't say stop showing up here. In fact, you can do all that, just don't preach in His name. You see what they're opposed to? It's Christ that's offensive. Just as was prophesied in Psalm 2. So in verse 18, they command them to neither speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Again, this just shows us that man's problem is not simply intellectual. Again, because they have the truth. The problem is it's not it's not that what they're saying is irrational. It's right there in front of them in the healing of a lame man. The problem is that their hearts are hard. They're self-worshippers and they can't they can't they have no categories to understand how they couldn't be self-worshippers. Man's problem is his heart we want to be our own authority and curse the person who interferes with us or our plans, who tells us we're wrong, and then asserts their beliefs as truth. This is how the Apostle Paul, who is probably at this meeting, this is how the Apostle Paul describes the mind of the unbeliever. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Their hard heart prevents them from seeing and embracing the truth. God has to change their heart. They need to be born again. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They're blind. They can't see it. They can't see the truth. They hear the words. They even hear the truth, but they can't embrace it because they're blind to it. It keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So apologetics, defense of the Christian faith, it has its place. But its its place is primarily for Christians to recognize our faith is absolutely trustworthy. And we can completely believe everything the Bible teaches. It's rational, and it's scientific, it's valid as valid as can be. The problem with presenting apologetics to unbelievers is not that it's not true, it's just that even if you were to give the most rational, clear evidence of the Christian faith, it's not enough to change their heart. The only thing that can change their heart is the Word of God. We are born again through the Seed of the Word of God, the abiding seed that then brings up fruit, fruit out of our lives. And so we just teach the truth. We point unbelievers to Scripture and help them understand what the Bible says regarding what is real and what is false. And this is why we should pray for unbelievers as we engage them in the Gospel. Because we can't, in our own power, in our own teaching, do anything to bring about a change of heart. All we can do is preach the truth, and so we pray. We should be as devoted to prayer as we are to arguing and pleading with them verbally. And notice how the apostles respond to these hardened men and their and their threats, In verses nineteen to thirty-one. They pray to boldly preach Christ. Because they know (laughs) there's nothing we can do to change these men's hearts, so let's pray. God, they pray for them, and they pray for the ability to keep on preaching. God, take note of their threats, they say, and help us to continue preaching boldly. And in their response, the apostles simply point out that this is ultimately a question who has the higher authority. Government or God? right? Immediately after they were challenged to stop teaching, the disciples respond by saying, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Now, they can't stop preaching Christ because Christ himself has already commanded them to preach. That was made clear at the end of each of the Gospels. It's very clear as well at the beginning of Acts. There to be witnesses... Of him, and that term witness will come up again and again throughout the books of it. That's what the whole book is about: being witness to Christ to unbelievers, and so they can't yield to the demand of Jewish leaders, or else that would be akin to treason or rebellion against their Lord. So the conflict here is really one of who has the higher authority. Like they're not disregarding the re- the authority of these Jewish rulers. This isn't rebellion. It's actually submission. They're not saying, hey, we can do whatever we please because we're Christians. No, they make it clear that the reason they can't obey their rulers' demands is because there's a higher authority whom they must obey. So Christians should always submit to their leaders unless those leaders are asking them to disobey God. That's a very hard thing to say, especially after what we've been through the last few years. But that's what the Bible teaches. And that's going to test our faith. Do we really believe that submitting to ungodly authorities will honor Christ? Do we really believe that giving up our rights, our constitutional rights, will honor God? Or are we going to trust in what we think is better? Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That is literally every creation of humans. So that could be any club, church, family, governments, any creation of humans, whether it be to the emperor supreme, or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So this is therefore the simple biblical principle that informs how we should respond to ungodly decrees. We should obey them unless obedience to them would require us to disobey God. We should obey our authorities, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're good or not, whether they're wise or not, we should obey them unless obeying them would require us to disobey God. And that's hard. But so is persecution, brothers and sisters. All right, it's real easy for us to, to, to watch movies, sing songs, and imagine ourselves in fantasy land being burned alongside Latimer and Ridley. But if you can't handle... Losing some rights, there's very little chance you will be able to handle the loss of your wife, the loss of your children, or the loss of your own life. We cannot disobey a higher authority in order to obey a lesser authority. If your supervisor tells you to disregard a company's safety regulations... You should disregard that supervisor and obey the company's safety regulations. You know that. We must always submit to the higher authority, and there is no higher authority than God. And so after honestly telling them that they won't stop preaching Christ because they have to obey their king, their lord, their God, the Jewish leaders simply let them go. They do threaten them some more, and we know that these aren't empty threats. Because just a few chapters later, they make good on these threats, with the killing of Stephen and even the, the Saul before he became the apostle Paul persecutes Christians all the way even to Damascus, throwing them in prison and probably had some killed. This was not an empty threat; they meant exactly what they said, and the Christians knew it. And so they report back to the church everything that had happened. You can imagine what this report is like. We have been threatened by the most powerful people in the land. They hate Christ, and therefore they have threatened to do us great harm unless we stop preaching. So let's pray. How should we respond to this threat? Should we hire a lawyer? Should we, you know, grab some swords and other weapons? Should we go find a fortress to hide out in and just preach Christ with a megaphone? Notice how they respond. They recognize, this is the church, it's not just the apostles, the church recognizes that everything that has taken place is happening because God has predestined it to take place. This is all the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And so they praise God together because they recognize that this persecution, this threat, is not random. It's purposeful. It's designed just like the crucifixion of Christ was designed. And this shouldn't be a shock to them. Jesus said, anybody, whether they're five years old or 80, anybody that wants to come after me, to follow me, must take up his cross and follow me. If you're not ready to die, you're not ready to follow Christ. That's what he meant. And so they're not shocked by this. This is what you would expect. Verse 28, all of this happened because you want it to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. See, they recognize the sovereignty of God in what has happened, and therefore there really is no longer any threat. Nothing that happens is outside of God's plan. There's no reason for fear or alarm. They are secure in the sovereignty of God. Because they know that God is directing even this persecution. It's part of the plan. They want to be a part of the plan. They want to walk in the Spirit. They want to do what the Spirit wants to do. And the truth is, Christians are spiritually secure in the sovereignty of God. We're spiritually secure. But that doesn't mean we're going to be physically secure. Sometimes God calls us into persecution. Peter, uh, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, we should expect it. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be forsaken. Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I could ask probably any child in here and they could tell me what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves. This should not be a shock to Remember what Paul says immediately after that great promise in Romans 8, 28. Right? This is the promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he asks this in verse 35. So just a few verses later, he asks this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We're spiritually secure. And then notice the list. Shall tribulation? No. No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? Danger? Sword? Think about that list. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. All things work together for good. Doesn't mean nice, easy, comfortable life with everybody looking on and applauding, most likely you will be hated, even by your family. Will any of these things separate us from the love of Christ, though? That's His point. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, There's no ruler in all of creation. No other power can separate us from the love of Christ. Jesus, our Lord. And so after acknowledging the absolute sovereignty of God over their persecution, the apostles then make this request to God. God, we know all this has happened because you have directed it. And in light of your sovereignty, in light of your power, This is what we want to pray. They make this request in verse 29. Now, Lord, take note of their threats. That's all they say. Just take note of them. This is their primary prayer. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Their, Their one request in response to their persecution is this. Help your slaves speak with clarity and confidence. Not, God, please protect our children. God, please protect our possessions. God, please protect our dignity. And I don't think this is just a hypothetical situation. It's worth us asking the question, is this how you would pray if you were facing unjust imprisonment and people were were threatening your life if you keep preaching Christ? This is how you would respond. Just like I don't think this is a hypothetical situation, just something that happened in the early church, we know it's not because it's happening throughout the world today. I also think that it's not hypothetical even for us in this room. There is a very good chance in our lifetime, we will be given the same challenge. In this prayer, the apostles are acknowledging that their lives have already been sold to their King. Right, we're your slaves, Christ. You own us. You call us to preach; we're going to preach. Just give us grace, grace to do it. You see the lack of pride as well. Like they're they're not. They're not like Peter was before when Christ warned him about the denial. They're praying, God help us for what's coming. Because we're not ready. But they also acknowledge their commodities at his disposal. So they, they simply ask for grace to speak with confidence. That is with clarity, with frankness or boldness. What they're asking is that there would be no mincing of words, no vagueness, no obtuseness in their, in their teaching. They want to be very clear about what they believe and what people need to do in response to the proclamation of the risen Christ. They're asking that God would make them bold preachers, not wishy-washy yo-yos. And what we pray, I think, it really is a good gauge of our spiritual temperature. What do we pray for? What burdens our hearts? See, despite the very recent threats, again, these Christians don't ask for safety. They don't ask for more resources, more money to keep them safe, or to even help them finish the job. They trust that all they need to do to finish the job is the Holy Spirit and the grace that He brings. That's the one thing they asked for. Help us to preach the word with boldness. And notice, God immediately answers their request. That's noteworthy. He immediately answers their request. Verse 31, When they had prayed, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together, again, they're gathering together, that's noteworthy, was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and did what? Look at it. They all were filled And therefore, they all began to speak the word of God with boldness. You you pray for God's will to be done in your life. God loves to answer those prayers. When you pray, God, help me show that you are my treasure. I'm willing to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, but give me the grace to do so. God will answer that prayer. And we shouldn't be shocked when he does. Well, do you know how churches in hostile countries today continue to thrive and not just survive? This is one of the questions that was asked by the researcher in the, in the article I mentioned at the very beginning of the survey. Sorry, being in the sermon where I mentioned those statistics. Franz Veerman, who's the Open Doors Managing Director of Research, says this in that article. He says, The biggest threat to Christianity is that persecution brings isolation and when it keeps on going incessantly it causes a loss of hope. So the biggest threat to the church in countries with persecution is decrease of resilience caused by incessant persecution and the feeling of being forsaken by the rest of the body of Christ. End quote. The biggest threat is isolation. Not having people Who love you and will be patient with you and assist you and help you. Who love not with romantic, willy-nilly, what's convenient for me sort of love, but who would therefore lay down their life for you if that's what it took. Who seek to meet the other's other's needs regardless of the cost to themselves. People, we need that. We're going to need it. And therefore we need to be such kind of people. So, sincere and enduring fellowship is critical to the endurance of the church. And then Veerman then notes this. He says, after three decades of research on persecution in the world, his organization has learned that such resilience is found by being, quote, anchored in the Word of God and in prayer. And then he says, also by being courageous, as the persecuted church is most often active in spreading the gospel, and vital and growing against the odds. So just in summary, the four things that he mentions that allows the church to thrive and not just survive in persecuted countries, and this is just based off of research, not study of the Word of God. He says the four things, devotion to the Word of God, devotion to prayer, devotion to one another, gathering together and boldly preaching the word of God which is exactly what we see here the early church was doing in the book of Acts let's pray that we might be such a church Lord we're not naive maybe we are more naive than I realize I don't know but we do know that things are getting increasingly Hostile for Christians. And we're less respected, less appreciated, and seen as a growing pariah in our culture and really across the world. So we need grace. We want to pray just like the early church prayed. Give us boldness to continue to preach the word of God with grace clarity, with precision, in our conversations, whether it's over the phone, over the internet, face to face. Lord, continue to to help us to grow in our devotion to the Word of God when we're on our own and when we're together. Our devotion to prayer when we're alone and when we're together. And continue to help us see the, the value of true fellowship. that we would not be shaken when this severe fire of testing, as Peter calls it, comes upon our church. We ask these things in Jesus' name.